passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody. It's John Pollock and Wei Ting here with you on a Thursday evening to go through two shows coming out of the wrestling world with the G1 Climax Final and WWE Crown Jewel. How are you today, Wei? Doing all right, John. Yeah, a lot of wrestling going on in the world today, not in North America. That is right. That is right. We have international-based professional wrestling to discuss. What time did you attack everything this morning? Maybe about like an IM. I started around like eight. Yes, I want to get in most of this uh, G1 show. So we are going to start off with uh, the Crown Jewel event and uh, quickly go through that card. Then we will tackle uh, the G1 and the real climax will be Chris Engler joining us to reveal the winner of the G1 contest and the winner of the C block standing. So stay tuned for all of that. Chris will be uh, coming up later on in the program, but uh, crown jewel from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And wait, we talked about this earlier this week. These are shows that I, I, I definitely have a, a conflict of how we cover these, how we approach these shows. I feel somewhat, odd covering these like they're just any other show and i think that we have also like created a bit of a precedent for ourselves in the past of how to tackle these shows and i don't know what the right answer is i don't i think that it i don't want to just do these shows and just be oblivious and ignore um everything that we have discussed um this this is the company the wwe that is in business with the government of saudi arabia and i think that needs to be apparent and what these shows present for the company and what they have the conflicts that they themselves have just soldiered soldiered through is the wrong term but what they have willfully entered into and gone through uh to make sure these shows happen so i think that's a very important disclaimer at the beginning of these and mm-hmm. i i don't have like the, the the perfect answer for just our coverage of these shows well at least for me you know, I, I feel like we have to at least have a conversation about this. I mean, considering the fact that we haven't had one of these shows in quite a while um, and to just kind of enter into it as a discussion about any other pay-per-view feels definitely odd. So at least ha- talking about it now, I think is important. It's important to understand why these shows are occurring. This is a case of sport washing by the Saudi Arabian go- government. Um, using, you know, a very international brand name with great recognition in the WWE to try to promote this government as one that is um, I don't know, very internationally friendly. And, you know, it's obviously- like it, it is a commercial. And I think it's very hard at different points. Like we had the, the first show of this 10 year agreement. That was the one in April of 2018. And that was the one where I think people went into it and it didn't really hit them until the show when you heard of people that were uh, not able to be on the card, what the content of the show was that was very much pro- pushing. Um, you know, uh, it was very much a the government that was, you could see what it was. It was very transparent on that first show. And then I think the peak of it all was later that year. It is exactly one month to the day of Jamal Khashoggi's murder that WWE goes through when other companies were stopping the, the idea of going to Saudi Arabia. WWE did. And that was a show that I think that was the greatest amount of scrutiny that they received. And on this one, I mean, we saw a lot of, you know, WWE involved in uh, various events around town. I, th- I think it's very difficult to watch it knowing knowing that history and we're watching a, a be a star campaign on this as well. Um, when, when you're talking about some of these actions, I think it's, I, I think it's very difficult. Some people can just turn that off. Uh, I'm not one of them, but I, and 
to be honest, I don't know how many people that are watching these shows, they want to hear about that stuff. But I don't think that means that that just means we go hands off and ignore it either. Certainly, yeah, uh, yeah. The the irony, I suppose, of of a, a BSR campaign happening for a show that's being paid by a government that is arguably the biggest among the biggest bullies in the entire world is is definitely interesting um, to say the least. But you know, as far as coverage goes, this is the most lucrative show, the most lucrative single professional wrestling event of the entire year. This is more than WrestleMania, what they make for these and shows. Yes, this is a this is a, a show and a deal that uh, this company at this point is dependent upon for their investors and their stock. And as a result, it needs to be covered. Now, we're going to be covering the events of this show based on the effectiveness of the entertainment value and the performances on the, of the wrestlers. Um, and I almost consider that I try to consider that a separate conversation with, with separate sort of critiques. Um, but we definitely encourage our listeners and ourselves as we go through this discussion to completely not lose sight of the context in which all of this is being presented. Certainly. I think that, I think that is, that is well said. And it is, I mean, listen, there are many people that will, uh, look at this show of, bringing WWE to a fan base that does not get WWE. And this is not a commentary on the, on the fans that have every right to go and enjoy themselves clearly did on this show. This was, Mm -hmm. I would say easily the most excitable and loud crowd that they had uh, during these these Saudi Arabia shows of the ones since 2018 that have been uh, televised. Um, You know, it was, it was a very energetic crowd for the majority of the show. It was a great crowd tonight. Yes. So, with, with all that said, uh, we are going to go into that, but I, I just think it's important to kind of address that at the beginning. And I think it's going to be something we we continue to battle with about uh, just what is the, the proper amount of coverage for these and the type of coverage maybe is, is uh, putting it better. Yeah, I certainly don't love the circumstance in which these events are occurring. I don't I don't know how anybody can, but that to me, like. It, it it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the efforts of the performers and the enjoyment of the crowd that went to the show to be entertained. Right. I think you can keep those two uh, separate. So anyway, we went through uh, the kickoff show uh, for an hour here, which was mainly highlighted by the Usos against Cedric Alexander and Shelton Benjamin, uh, Michael Cole, Corey Graves, and Byron Saxton were on commentary for uh, the duration of the event. Um, fine opener here. They went 10 minutes, 39 seconds. I guess the only noteworthy fact is you had two in theory heel tag teams, uh, paired with one another, uh, and the crowd easily taking to the Usos as the baby faces. And they worked it as such with the heat on Jay for most of the match. And then Jimmy and Jay hitting double super kicks ending when Jay hit Alexander with the Uso splash in 10 minutes and 39 seconds. Uh, it was not billed as a title match. And you have teams on separate brands. So a, a bit of an odd pairing more so than anything. Uh, but the Usos were kind of default baby faces here, even though they would be involved in the main event in a heel fashion. Just seemed like an extra match that they decided to throw on this card just because. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the Usos are the bigger stars here and they are the champion. So it made sense that they would go over. There's really one other interesting fact about this kickoff show where they started and credit to John Cena for alerting me about this. But they started off the kickoff promoting Roman versus Brock as a no DQ match. We even saw a graphic listing as such. And then midway through the broadcast, you had Kayla say um, they decided, <laughs> they decided not- against it. Yeah, they decided not to uh, take the stipulation. So it's no longer an ODK match. Uh, so that was incredibly odd, you know, for a show that I, I, I wonder if they're even pre-taping these like kickoffs, but maybe not. Hmm. Yeah, it was, a, it was a very strange moment. They also tacked on a Falls Count Anywhere stipulation for the No Holds Barred match between Bill Goldberg and Bobby Lashley, which I guess they, they agreed to that. They did agree. Yes. Because they stuck to it. Yes. The show proper opened up with um, with a pyro display that would certainly put a dent in the next earnings report. Uh, this pyro budget on this show had to cover at least one of the uh, release cycles over the past year. How do you make a show seem big? Pyro, explosions, Fire. stipulations, 
uh, galore. Yeah. That's what mm-hmm. we had on this show. Pretty much there were, there was either a stipulation or stakes attached to every match on the show, I guess, except for your kickoff and Mansoor and Ali, everything else had something attached to it. Oh, it really was a mania level show. Yes. And we started with kind of your, just uh, a mania level, like hell in a cell here with edge and Seth Rollins, uh, interesting placement here. Um, Jessica Carr was the referee here, and all of the women had pretty similar wardrobes where the arms were covered. Um, the women in the three-way, we would see later in tights, and they all had their custom T-shirt with long sleeves. Yeah, yeah. So I understand, like, I, I don't know the specific sort of, like, negotiation or the dress code there, but I believe, like, at least the, the, the idea is to, like, keep the dressing to modest levels. And I suppose that means, you know, like not having sort of skin tight revealing types of, I, I don't know, upper wear, upper body wear. But do they all have to be such cheap looking baggy T-shirts? Like, yeah, could, they couldn't even wear shirts like and this was the case with Lacey Evans and Natalia, like these oversized shirts. Like, yeah. And, and I suppose like they had to be baggy, like in nature, I suppose that's part of the the the, the agreement. But did they have to look so cheaply made like they all of look, these because they look like shirts that were just custom made for the night these are not shirts that are even sold they like they looked like where you would go and see knockoff wwe shirts yeah they, someone that's they, what they look like <laughs> est it's like they, they all they all look like shirts that would be sold at the parking lot and i mean i understand like this that's a whole different discussion about you know what what they're actually wearing but like if you're going to go the t-shirt route, come on, give me like an all over print, like put some effort into these shirts. But why, these are the shittiest looking shirts that I think I've ever seen WWE sell. Well, um, they spent all the money on the pyro, so you couldn't afford uh, the, the t-shirt department was hit here. So uh, this match was nuts um, for an opening match. Um, you know, it was pretty spectacular. Uh, they went 27 minutes and 38 seconds Every weapon under the sun was involved here. And we had Rollins in a callback to the theme of 2020 going after the eye of Edge with both the piece of the chair that got broken and then catching him in the eye later. But um, but Edge's eye recovered and we had steps brought in. There was a, a buckle bomb spear combo by Edge that got a big near fall. Edge brought in a ladder. The two fought on that. And then Rollins hits the super kicks playing off of the Madison Square Garden match that he won last month. And Rollins finds a chain, wraps it around his boot, super kicks Edge with it, and then puts Edge's head onto the chair and announces this is how your fairy tale ends when he goes for the stomp with the chain onto the chair, but Edge uses the chair and low blows Rollins before he super kicks Rollins, removes the chain, chokes Rollins with it, grabs a wrench because there was a rogue toolbox that made its way here. And he applied the crossface using the wrench. Uh, he releases the hold and stomps Rollins onto the chair, winning this match um, on its own. I thought this was really spectacular for a hell in a cell match. Uh, all the best to the matches that had to follow this one, because this was like, <laughs> this was an excessive start to the show, like 28 minutes uh, and all of the weapons under the sun, many of which got reused later in the night as well, including that chain. Um, but nonetheless, on its own, like I thought this was really strong between these two. And let's be honest, these two have had some tremendous matches over the three with SummerSlam, SmackDown and this being the conclusion. Yeah, it really does kind of continue the string of really great matches, not just between these two, but in Edge's second career thus far. They've all largely been very stellar, and this was. No I would exception. say Rollins has been the best um, run of matches I think mm. Edge has had. Like, there's there's been some that to me have not quite hit that that level, but it seems like the Rollins ones, these two have worked well together. They really have, yeah. Um, you know, like many modern Hell in a Cell matches, they're really just kind of in close settings for like no DQ weapons types of matches. Um, but I, I do feel like they contribute to maybe a higher intensity in those no wep- uh, no DQ types of weapons matches. I, I especially appreciated in this one a lot of the thought put into every single weapon. Each Tons. weapon felt like it was a callback to something else, whether it be, you know, the chair leg for Edge, of course, 
or like that chair elbow drop he kind of did that was a, supposed to be a callback to like his uh taker match or and then like of course the ladder you know being associated with edge as well to the chain being used around Rollins super kick like i thought everything was very well designed with a lot of thought put into it it wasn't just kind of mindless weapons i thought it, there was there was a lot of creativity and uh, i echo your sentiments on that they probably made the best choice of what to follow that because you have Mansoor and Mustafa Ali mm-hmm. and Mansoor came out to a superstar reaction. Um, and Hey, credit to this crowd. I mentioned how that was like a lot to start this crowd. Like there were a few dips, but pretty consistent. They were, they were hot throughout this. They were into all the stars and like by far of the, however many cards since 2018, this, this is by far the best crowd that they have had. I agree. So this one, I mean, Mansoor just played heel here. Um, and uh, Ali, Ali did. Sorry, sorry. Ali played heel here. That would have been very, very uh, mind-boggling <laughs> if they went that direction. So <laughs> Mansoor gets caught in the Koji clutch and he fights to get the rope break. Ali climbs to the top, misses a 450 with Mansoor draped on the middle rope. And then Mansoor wins with the slingshot neckbreaker in 10 minutes and three seconds. Uh, a nice match between these two. I think that it was the crowd was really hot for the entrance, pop big for the finish. Uh, but then out walks this man that is completely covered. You don't know who this was. And he walks in and he reveals himself. And this crowd goes insane as Michael Cole identifies that this is Tarag Hamidi. Tarek Hamdi. Hamdi. Sean, did you not watch the Tokyo Olympics? No, I did not watch the the karate portion of the Olympics. So I was not aware of Saudi Arabia's silver medalist who was... (laughs) So first of all, let's explain it. This crowd goes nuts, okay? So anyone that is saying, hey, who is this guy? This was for the audience, and they absolutely knew who this guy was. This worked really well. And he lays out Ali with a kick which Cole like dances around this, but this guy is a silver medalist because he got disqualified for using an illegal kick. Is that so? Yes. And well, Cole said that, that kick looks familiar, but they didn't actually, I guess they didn't want to explain all the context, well, but well, well, how can a kick be illegal in a karate competition? I, again, I did not watch way. So I'm, I'm going off of Wikipedia here. Damn. So this was like a controversial band weapon he used. Yeah. But this dude was one of the most over people. And I mean, you had the endorsement here with Mansoor. I mean, this was terrific. Like for what you were trying to accomplish, uh, great utilization of someone that this audience saw as a national superhero um, paired with Mansoor, who WWE is trying to make as their Saudi Arabian superhero. I thought it was incredibly successful from the match to the closing angle itself. I think Mansoor, you know, over the past, whatever airtime he's been given, I think he's done the best with and in this case, now that he is actually an established main roster guy, I felt like you really got to see a bit of a culmination, I would say. Um, uh, and and the, maybe the biggest test he's had to date, he is a very good baby face, you know, and I would say like white meat baby face at that, you know, at this point without having too much of an edge to him, aside from like the bits of aggression that we do see, which I think he's fantastic at. He has great fundamentals in ring, good facial expressions. He's a good promo so I would say like this early portion of this career, he has really perfected with as much as they've given him. The question is, how much are they going to give him? I suppose as long as this deal is in place, they will give him a lot. But how f- far are they going to push him on the main roster? I guess we'll see. Well, two times a year, he can guarantee himself a quality spot on these shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, Titus O'Neil and Natalia had uh, hosted the the Susan G. Komen portion of the show with four. This was not specifically Susan G. Komen. Later in the show, they they promoted Susan G. Komen. They did, yeah. But this specific portion was in association with the Zara Breast Cancer Association. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. From Jeddah. It was a separate one. But later there was the the video, which was Susan G. Komen specific. Yes, it is still. They're still very much working with Susan G. Komen. Yes. Randy Orton and Riddle versus AJ Styles and Omos for the Raw tag titles. Um, you know, I have seen the combination of these four now for months. This was like the match they built up to do at WrestleMania. And they've pretty much been linked since. And they're still on Raw, so they're probably going to be linked for a long time. So they have their match down pat. It is 
a quality match. They know what to do. They kept Omos out of this for almost all of it, aside from some no-selling when Randy struck him. Uh, but this was largely the other three having their usual match with a a really strong finish with Styles going for the phenomenal forearm, caught with the RKO in midair, floating bro by Riddle in 842. And it was accentuated by a crowd that was into the stars to elevate this in front of a big crowd. Yeah, another very successful match where I thought every emotion, every reaction that they were trying to get, they got from this crowd. Orton, the moment he came in, he was treated like a big deal. Um, they managed to really set up a nice little interaction between him and, and Omos when the two of them were in there. I mean, the big key in this entire feud is how well they've been managed to protect Omos and have been able to make him seem like a bigger star despite having very limited in-ring experience and limited you know tools for his in-ring abilities but every time he tagged in this crowd looked at him and treated him like a big star really great looking rko out of nowhere uh to counter that phenomenal forearm and you come out of it you know with the belt still on on the baby faces but i think omos's stock still being very protected if not even increased a little we buried the lead on this match because for the entrances i noticed this first when edge came out there was a group of camels by the mm-hmm. entranceway. So for this one, Riddle goes to the back and he comes out on the camel, like he's Bobby Heenan at WrestleMania. And so we had a camel budget. We had like a live animal budget on the show. Yeah. Yeah. How do you make a show see big, John? Camels. Fire and camels. Yes. With one hump, uh, these, uh, this camel, which Cole had the specific term for. Queen's Crown Tournament Finals, Zelina Vega and Dewdrop. Um, you could hear a pin Dewdrop during this match. It was certainly the quietest the crowd had been. And, you know, maybe we would have su- suspected it looking at looking at this card up, up, you know, top to bottom without the Queen's Crown sort of a stipulation. I mean, it, it was probably the lowest in star power of any yeah. of them. Um, I mean, the good news is if uh, you are tabulating. This was by far the longest match of the whole tournament coming in. They went Broadway five minutes, 50 seconds, ending with Delina <sighs> Vega hitting a code red. Um, I, I don't have a, a, a lot of, you know, strong points to make about this match, but of what it was wrestled as like they hit their stuff. It was fine. Um, but th- this was probably the weakest match on the show. Probably. Yeah crowd was not there for it unfortunately i mean compared to this was a really stacked show and again in terms of star power this was very low the the tournament itself was treated with very little importance on the tv show itself um i was you know as were the brackets like this was you know and you could say the same for the king of the ring like these these were not tournaments where big stars were put in them like between both i would say finn balor was like one significant star well, at least I'll say you have stories going into the men's tournament, at least with, with Woods. You had nobody really to cheer for in this one. You know, like Zelina, I was surprised that they gave the victory to because we've had zero indication that there would be any sort of focus put on her. Dewdrop, I mean, the most she's had is is this Yas Queen catchphrase. And beyond that, really no time to like build the audience's sympathy for her character at all, or at least her desire. And the other thing is, She's doubled the size of Zelina, and she's the baby face of this one. So how is anybody supposed to get into this, right? So the other thing is, like, when they coronate these, like, when when they win, I don't, I hate the fact that, like, they don't at least have people putting the crown and the robe onto the winners. How awkward. Like, I win this thing. I've just wrestled a grueling five-minute match here. Now my job is to walk up the ramp and put the crown on myself. You know, how how unglamorous. If nothing else, this gives Zelina Vega a character, something. So that's a Cole called her Lorena, Queen Zelina. So All right. there you go. And she's on Raw now, correct? I, I think don't know. these are very tough to keep track of. No holds barred, falls count anywhere, Bill Goldberg versus Bobby Lashley. Uh, watching the video for this and how they are... Um, like it, it to me, like we made reference to this on the shows. It, it felt very awkward. Okay. With the whole death theme Definitely. of this. And yes. even one of the lines, I don't know what it was said verbatim, but um, this is the kind of scenario or place you want to take this match 
meaning the no holds barred match, but certainly has a double meaning here that I just, I felt it was very awkward. You think it's intentional? Part of me somewhat, uh, the pessimist kind of does because this could have been built up easily as just a grudge match without invoking death as such a prominent theme to such a ridiculous degree as they did. Uh, I would hope not. But I, I, it's either way, it's incredibly tone deaf. Absolutely. And like, at, at I, best, I, it's tone deaf. At worst, it's incredibly offensive. Yeah. I don't doubt there are several people beyond us watching a show like this having the exact same feelings, whether or not intended. When threatening to kill used to be one of the things that, that, that was not WWE, that was like an edict that you did not wish upon to build mm. up heat. So, Lashley wraps his hand in a chain before the match begins to attack Goldberg and get the heat and cuts open Goldberg's head. The announcers noted that it's so heated between the two, they had to fly on separate flights over here. Um, And then it's Lashley attacking the knee uh, that Goldberg uh, had mentioned in the promo that he had to get surgery on. So Lashley misses a spear crashing through a table in the corner. So Goldberg limps away, hits the spear and jackhammer, but the gloves are off and he's not done yet. He puts Lashley through the barricade with a spear. Then he fights him up the ramp and tries to drop the steps on Lashley's head. Lashley gets out of the way. And as Lashley is retreating up the ramp, Benjamin and Alexander come out with kendo sticks. They're taken out by Goldberg who uses the kendo stick on Lashley. And then for the, the major spot of the match, he spears Lashley off of the ramp. And this was not a small drop. They go off the ramp through these set up tables on the floor and Goldberg pins him in 1125. Um, this is uh, Goldberg's longest match since Brock Lesnar in 2004. And I have to say that they pulled this one off. I think mm-hmm. the, the best you could have hoped for with mm-hmm. a pretty ambitious ending for a 54 year old in Goldberg and Bobby Lashley, who is not, not exactly uh, the youngest dude either. This is a pretty ambitious spot to book for these two, um, knowing that Goldberg's matches have been kept short for a reason. And this guy is, you know, working with this knee as well. I, I thought it was an incredibly successful Goldberg match with a lot of bells and whistles attached to it. I, I think at this point, we know what Goldberg at his age has to offer but they maximize that value. I mean, really, this match with Lashley immediately attacking him with that chain gave Goldberg the chance to just kind of lay low and rest for the first half of this match, you know, and just sell. And when it was time for him to come alive and to get his big comeback, you did the jackhammer relatively early, two moves in for him so that he had his full energy. And then the rest of the time was like, you know, some more bells and whistles, spearing the guy through the fence uh, or, or the barricade. And then, you know, walking your way up towards the ramp for that big final spot. The pacing of it was great. The intensity was kept up. The crowd was there for the entire thing. And it built up to a great culminating final spot that looked really good and was very well de- uh, de- planned and and and, and cre- created so a very successful match i would say yeah it was stronger than i thought that they would give a uh, goldberg um th- this win and just destroying this guy but i mean kind of the their what they gave lashley at the end was they showed him leaving on his own power walking on uh, walking out here but this this was a strong strong win for Goldberg. You kind of had to, I mean, given the story, right? I mean, you know, with, with the threatening of the kid and all. Mm-hmm. So this was, no, this was the climax of the, of the program with those two and Goldberg. I, I could see a rematch. You think so? For what did reason? They, was this already the second one? Did they this do was, this? Before? They did SummerSlam. Oh, you're right. Then never mind. Finn Balor, Xavier Woods for the King of the Ring crown. Um, they had a really nice match. I, I thought like this was, you know, you had the two baby faces, so you didn't really have the dynamic of the heel. It's just two guys with mutual respect. Um, Balor fired up with, you know, the sling blade shotgun, uh, but then misses the coup de gras. Woods uses a mahi straw cradle and then this gourd buster onto his knees and then hits the big elbow drop, which looked great and pins Balor in 937. And really the, the high point of this was Woods uh, putting over this win. He was elated. Um, I thought this was like the best reaction to winning the King of the Ring. Then I saw Kofi Kingston's reaction video that he shot watching this, uh, and he lost his mind. So Xavier Woods is your king. Nice match, I thought. I, I don't think it got to the level of great, but it was 
good match. And Woods, it was the, I think the one match where people had like a, a vested interest in seeing this guy win. And it was the big swerve. They gave it to you. Swerved me completely. Oh my God. He, the, the baby face you've been pushing the entire time actually wins the tournament. I couldn't believe it. But uh, he's the lone guy in this entire thing with like Queen's Crown and King of the Ring with any sort of storyline, any sort of time and attention where, where he actually conveys his desire to win this thing. Have we heard from Finn Balor once how, why he would want to win a King of the Ring? It's meaningless to him. Like it's meaningless for most of the people who are participating here, except for Xavier Woods, who treated this entire thing as if it was his WrestleMania. So I'm I'm really glad that they followed through. I mean, it was very clear to this audience who I think you know they they wanted to win. It was the only guy really to cheer for. I found it interesting to see Balor like work as a babyface going up against a bigger baby babyface here because Balor didn't so much change his style because Woods was such a bigger fan favorite. All he had to do was just dominate the match and the crowd was going to be on Wood's side so they gave us a straight up babyface story here i can't believe it yeah i mean that that was the stunning part was just how clean this was and how the finish it was the right finish to do they they went with it biggie drew mcintyre for the wwe championship so i i thought they had a really really nice match together i i, I thought this worked really well um Early on, it, it's Drew that's in control. Each are delivering belly to bellies to one another. And Drew got to kick out of the big ending uh, early. Uh, then after that, he goes for a big ending up the second rope. That gets blocked. Big E teases the spear off the apron. And Drew cuts it off with the Claymore for a great near fall. And McIntyre tries his own version of the big ending. He gets cocky. This was right out of the uh, the Tetsuya Naito playbook. And instead, Biggie counters, hoists up Drew, and hits the second big ending of the match to retain it in 13:25. Didn't overstay its welcome. And to be quite honest, I think if these two were staying on the same brand, you could have extended this. Um, I thought they worked really well together. I like this match a lot. I think so too. Yeah, I. It was a very satisfying match. You know, with a lot of big boos. Both men looked really strong throughout it. In fact, I felt the crowd almost like side even more with Drew than Big E throughout. And that's somewhat understandable given like, you know, Drew, I think, has been pushed on top a a bit longer. But Big E needed this win, of course, you know, starting off his run. And it was a very strong one, but one that also, I think, kept Drew, you know, like Drew is a clear number two now. But I mean, he can very well move back up to number one because he's moving on to a different show. So the them doing the mutual respect angle at the end, I thought worked out really well. Becky Lynch, Sasha Banks, Bianca Belair for the SmackDown Women's Championship. Uh, 19 minutes and 23 seconds. Uh, this was like a really, you could see, involved match when it came to the layout, the three-way spots. I mean, they had a lot of complex stuff that they went through here and came up with all these different ideas. Like you could just see lots of stuff, obviously thrown against the, the wall. Uh, name, I would say some of the big takeaways, this crowd saw Becky Lynch as the big baby face in this match. Uh, lots of chance for her. I love some of the spots they came up with, with Bianca Belair, including this one arm military press to Sasha Banks. That was the most impressive visual on this show. Yeah, and and I think anybody who knows how military press works, I mean, knows that this is impressive nonetheless. It is, but like the fact that she could even do it though and smile and look as if she didn't have to do much lifting at all, like that 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 is still legitimately very impressive. So, yeah, it was a great spot. Yeah, that looked great. I mean, there were just uh so many spots here. Like this was not the traditional WWE three-way where one gets knocked out. The other two have the match. Like there was constant uh, exchanges, breaking up of holds. Uh, Banks grabbed Belair by the ponytail uh, because we've got to work this braid in and come up with every conceivable u- utilization of this ponytail. And Belair used the braid to spin Banks and get her version of the European clutch for a two count. Lynch comes in, manhandle slam to Banks, the Belair breaks up, they fight on the floor, Lynch comes off the announcer's desk, taking out both, she applies a double disarmor to both women at once, and Belair lifts them both up, and it ends with Belair hitting the KOD to Lynch, Banks and Belair go to the floor, 
and Banks returns, hoping to go pin Lynch, who is selling the KOD, but gets cradled by Becky, who holds on to the bottom rope while Belair is still on the floor. Becky retains the championship. I thought this match was great. Um, and I feel like as a performance, like just as a straight up, fa- like for my taste, this was probably my match of the night. Their rhythm in the, in this match was incredibly fast, constant action, very elaborately designed sequences that involved all three of them. You know, for the past 20 years, I think like the three-way dance in the WWE, uh, it, it's sort of been a signature match of theirs. But I think it's also followed a bit of a formula where it's always two people in the ring at once and then the third person waits outside. This really wasn't that type of match. This one involved all three of them constantly throughout the entire thing, doing some very creative spots. All three of them looked incredible. But in particular, I felt like the two baby faces in Sasha and Bianca both definitely shined the most for me as an in-ring performance. But, you know, as far as like the top, like we definitely we definitely wish the, the Queen's crown and like the undercard of the WWE's women's division could receive a lot more than they have. But at least uh, as far as the main event mix goes between Charlotte, Bianca, Sasha, and Becky, they are on fire right now. You know, over the past week, these matches, these four have been able to put out. If Charlotte, Bianca had a better finish, I mean, I think we'd be giving a lot more reference to like the output that they've had in less than a week, right. you know, starting from Friday until now, the, all three of those matches have the been. The finish did tremendous. erase the, the match, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but they're all amazing, amazing performers. And in theory now, the focus for the next four weeks is going to be Survivor Series, where I would hope they have a creative way to settle the the championships being on opposite shows. There's a natural way to do that. And Becky and Charlotte is the one combo we have not seen over these last couple of weeks. We have not seen a singles match, I believe, between them. So you can build towards that. And I mean, on the one hand, it's, like this queen's crown, it should establish a contender, but I don't mm-hmm. know if people see Zelina Vega at that level. That's that's a big drop um, from what the championship picture has been, but that should be what the tournament is used for. Reigns and Brock Lesnar for the Universal Championship. This is their first singles match since SummerSlam of 2018, and the crowd is just electric for this match. They saw this as the big match on the show, um, so great atmosphere for it. And Reigns is avoiding suplexes early on and just grabbing onto the rope, trying to avoid. So when Lesnar finally hits one, the crowd was that much louder after Reigns had tried to stop it. Uh, Reigns then charges Lesnar into the the post uh, and sends him to the floor where he hits a huge tope uh, laying out Lesnar. And back inside of the ring, he hits the Superman punches, sets up for the spear, but Lesnar with a leapfrog Reigns runs into the corner, missing Lesnar, and Lesnar hits an F5 for a big near fall. This is like eight minutes in, so you know that this is kind of the pace we're going at because we're not going long. We're here for uh, we're for in and out, have a strong match in the time allotted. He goes for another F5. It's countered with the guillotine, but Lesnar breaks out of that. And as Lesnar goes for yet another F5, this time he takes out referee Charles Robinson with Reigns' boot nailing him. Lesnar tries to lift up Robinson and just drops him and turns around into a spear. Both men are down and Heyman throws the belt in between both of them yelling, you know what to do with it, but you are not led to believe who is Heyman addressing? Who is he helping here? There's a tug of war spot bringing back memories of that go home angle before WrestleMania where they had the, uh, the tug of war over the belt. Remember that? I do not actually. Oh, it's a, it's a memorable visual. Lesnar wins, but then the Usos show up, double super kick Lesnar, and Reigns hits Brock with the championship belt as another referee comes in to count three in 12 minutes and 20 seconds. Roman Reigns retains, but certainly this program continues. And Heyman did a really good job going up the ramp where he's got a shocked look on his face. And that's, that's the drama here is who was Paul trying to help? Yeah, his acting throughout the entire match it was very good. You know, uh, just being stoic ringside and playing his character even when the camera is not on him. Very, very good match, I felt. You know, unlike... it's not, It wasn't unlike their other matches in terms of, like, pace and activity and moveset, 
But I think the difference in dynamic, obviously, in this case is that they've switched places uh, with one being a baby face and one being a, a heel. And I would say they are much better fits in their current roles than they were in the past. In the past, you've had a very lukewarm baby face in a Roman Reigns and a heel that the fans definitely wanted to cheer in Brock Lesnar. Now you have a legitimate heel in Roman Reigns and the fans have rightful permission and in a match that is designed to make you want to cheer Brock Lesnar. So the intensity I felt was really high in this. The action was very satisfying. And yeah, I thought it was just a very worthy main event to an otherwise very good show in ring. Yeah, I think you have to look at this as like in terms of a wrestling show, they had a great crowd. I think the, this was the, the best show that they have done in, in Saudi Arabia um, with these the, the programs that they built up to. And again, the, the audience was great on, on this show. And with Reigns and Lesnar, it certainly keeps the door open to continue this um, whenever um, they are looking to revisit this. Next time they have a show with a high price tag, yeah. I mean, you know, in the past, like, all of these shows have been super weird, but like they've relied on a lot more stunts in the past with like, you know, the returns of like a Shawn Michaels or something. Um, in this case, I felt like they were treating this as if it was just a WrestleMania. And this honestly at times felt more like a WrestleMania than many WrestleManias have. We've got culminating storylines where the hero actually wins and achieves the objectives that they, they intend on. Um, you have very big, satisfying, you know, main events with superstars and great crowds, you know, so this was a very good show in terms of entertainment and in ring. Okay. We're going to go over to the G1 climax, uh, that started off the day from Budokan hall, uh, with an announced attendance of 3,861. So, uh, I'm just going to go through some of the results and I'll just throw out anything notable from some of the undercard stuff. It really was two big things on this show that we'll be largely focusing on. So uh, El Desperado and Yoshinobu Kanemaru defeated Kosei Fujita and Ryohei Oiwa in eight minutes and 40 seconds when uh, Kanemaru delivered a vertical suplex and Boston Crab to tap out Fujita. I thought this was um, maybe the best performance of Fujita and Oiwa. They got a ton of offense in on this one. And between yesterday's show and today's, I think this was like the best of Fujita and Oiwa we've seen throughout this uh, G1 tour. Jeff Cobb and the Great Okan, they lost to Toru Yano and Yuji Nagata after Yano hit Great Okan with a low blow that the referee missed. So Yano pinned the Great Okan, who was pissed and stormed to the back with a chair. So maybe Okan is going to be on Toru Yano duty on the next tour. Tomohiro Ishii, Hiroki Goto, and Yoshihashi lost to the House of Torture, Evil, Show, and Yujiro. This had all your fun elements, uh, including uh, a referee bump, uh, show is continuing his gimmick of unprotected chair shots that he delivered to Yoshihashi. And then the referee was down as evil hit. Everything is evil after Yoshihashi took the chair shot and the referee comes to counting the three count at 1120. Um, so, uh, chair shots aside, the outcome of this, it was a non-title match, but this totally sets up uh, evil showing Yujiro going for the never six man tag title. So that will be uh, coming up. Then it was uh, Kenta, Tamatonga, Tangalo, and Chase Owens over Hiroshi Tanahashi, Togi Makabe, Tomoki Honma, and Tiger Mask after Chase Owens pinned Honma with the package pile driver. And the angle afterwards, Owens is signaling to Tanahashi he's coming for the United States Championship after beating Tanahashi in the G1. But then Kenta nails Tanahashi with the U.S. belt, and the two argue over who's going to go for Tanahashi's belt first. And Chase Owens concedes. Okay, you can have the first shot, but then it's my turn. So it looks like we're going to get Tanahashi and Kenta first, maybe as early as Power Struggle, because their next tour starts on Sunday, and Power Struggle is on November 6th. So it's right around the corner, and I imagine we'll get the full card in a couple of days. But it looks like Tanahashi and Kenta at an upcoming date. Yeah, Owen says he was going to go back to the U.S. first. That's that's where you would think that that would take place. I don't see Tanahashi and Owens on a on a big show in japan yeah who knows but then zach saber jr comes out and everyone is wondering what is what is zach here he is not listed on the show and with that katsuyori shibata enters budokan hall and kevin kelly and chris charlton who were reacting completely organically this was not 
on the run sheet. So this was kept very quiet, I guess, with those that needed to know. And it is announced that Katsuyori Shibata, Shibata unannounced, is going to have a five-minute exhibition match with Zack Sabre Jr. And this place just lost it. Specifically an exhibition match under UWF rules. Uh, right. That's what they, they stated on commentary. I mean, this was really just a grappling match. We weren't doing any kind of points or anything like that, that you, yeah. With is there a way of saying this was a grappling exhibition basically? Yeah. That's, that's what it was here. Um, it was, it was incredible to hear Kevin Kelly and especially Chris Charlton react to this, that you could tell was just a natural reaction of like, what is going on here and figuring it out in, in the flesh, like, Oh my God, he's wrestling. Yeah, I mean, if if they did know, then the acting was superb. They did, they did not know. Oh, so you so okay, yeah. Well, incredible. I mean, incredible that it happened the way it did. Um, and I think you know, Chris especially conveyed the enthusiasm that everybody around the world was feeling seeing this moment unfold. It it was just like you know, on a show where I feel like so much has been predictable in New Japan, to all of a sudden get something so out of the norm like this. Not just the return of, of Shibata, but Shibata in a exhibition grappling match. It feels so unlike the New Japan Pro Wrestling playbook of late. It was a wonderful moment. Yeah, I mean, you just got the two. Um, they just start grappling, and pretty much everyone's just in this fog of watching Katsuyori Shibata um, in perform. here. Yeah, just to see him perform. Um Zach came out twisting the ankle. There was a head scissors spot where Shibata did a, a headstand to escape uh, right out of the Tiger Mask Dynamite Kid series. Each are just working for chokes. And before you know it, the five minutes is up. And Kevin Kelly had the best line here where he said that Shibata wants more time. Don't we all? It was a great, great line from Kevin Kelly here. And then Shibata just addressed the crowd, thanked Zach, and said that next time he's in this ring, It'll be for a match and took the big back bump, just like he did at the finals in 2017, the I'm alive moment. Uh, this was totally unexpected. And I would say this, you know, we have for all the wrong reasons, the other big story on the, on this show, but this was the, the feel good moment of the show. And the feel good moment of professional wrestling today, if not this entire week, uh, if not for some people, maybe a, a bigger scope than that. Uh, this was wonderful, dude. Like, and it did, didn't matter who won or the fact that we didn't get a winner. It was just more so the fact that we got to see this guy perform again. And I think the idea to do this, I would assume probably largely came from Shibata, who I think, you know, from what you can tell has desperately missed simply performing in front of a crowd. And I felt like the idea to do it under these UWFI grappling rules is absolutely brilliant. I would assume on a daily basis, he probably takes risks bigger than this, you know, like just in the dojo. But to keep it just to, you know, straight up grappling and beautiful grappling at that, uh, it was a wonderful way to, and, and uh, to me, it completely changes the game. Like how many people do we know that, you know, might have these sort of unfortunate concussion injuries that have prevented them from continuing to, you know, wrestle again. Um, there's a style of performance that's available out there in via this, you know, via what we see in Bloodsport that allows these guys to have performances without too much risk to, to there's definitely still risk, but without too much risk to their bodies. And Shibata completely falls in line with that. I have no doubt he probably handpicked Zack Sabre Jr. as his opponent for this type of match, and you could, probably couldn't have asked for a better person. Um, and, you know, when it comes to, like, this sort of wrestling, it's it's not really just the technique, but it's also the art of conveying the pain and the torque and, and the submission as well, of which both these men are completely excellent in. So my only, you know, sadness was the fact that this was only five minutes because I think you could tell everybody, including the performers themselves, wanted to go at least five more, if not 15, if not 20. So Shibata says he's going to, like, come back in a wrestling match. I mean, that remains to be seen. To me, it feels a lot more like wishful thinking, but... It could be the start, but if not, I would love to see this again. Yeah, I think that's the other side of it is that you come out of this and I think, I think people have to really realize just how significant that head injury was in 2017 and that he has not done a match since then. 
um, and clearly wants to. And they've kind of teased this, like when he did the big brawl with Kenta. Um, you know, you had those hints. Did they tease it or did he tease it? Well, that's that's what it comes down to is Shibata. I mean, how much, um, you know, he is pushing for this versus what New Japan, obviously they were comfortable enough to allow this in a very protected style of exhibition that there was not going to be any kind of trauma to the head or any kind of risk um, that that you're going to run into in something like this. Um, but you're left with, the want of seeing this guy, I just, unless this guy is healthy and he has doctors that are clearing him, uh, I think people have to like temper expectations. Like that was a very serious head injury that he sustained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, like if there's anything we've learned this year and, and from years past, I mean, it's never say never in, in this uh, industry for these sort of comebacks. So I think we all hope for the best. But let me just say, like, if this is allowed, I, I really do hope they run with it. My suggestion, give him the King of Pro Wrestling Championship. Take oh. him from Toriano and every match that Shibata has, make it, he, he he's allowed to pick the stipulation. You make it one of these great exhibition matches. Puts him on the show, gives him belt, allows him to play storylines, cut promos, and gives one of these great matches that breaks up some of the monotony that we've seen for so long on these New Japan shows. There's, I mean, it's pro wrestling. You can yeah. come up with different ways to utilize. Like, if you're comfortable enough with Shibata in this kind of style that he can do these, I mean, as you said, like, he's probably doing, like, a lot of this on a pretty routine basis in the dojo that you can you can do this and you have an audience that will eat the stuff up that would love to see him do a 20 minute grappling match and the roster of opponents that's available for to him like between it, here and strong there's oh my god endless yeah. guys that you can and, do this with i mean and the one that's out there that everybody's already suggesting that is a dream match scenario is of course brian danielson so yeah, I, who I think has been signed up for about five thousand yeah. matches from now until He's the end booked. of his career yeah. uh following that was a uh, shingo takagi hiromu Sonata and Bushi over Kojima, Tenzon, Taguchi, and Master Wato when Takagi hit the pumping bomber to Tenzon. Uh, Tenzon bringing out his illegal Mongolian chops in this as well uh, before succumbing to uh, the pumping bomber. So LIJ getting the win. They kind of tease some stuff here with Hiromu and Taguchi trading words. Uh, but that was the setup as we went to the G1 final between Kota Ibushi and Kazuchika Okada. Um, I could run through this whole match. Um, It was on its way to being a really strong match. I thought it was still a very good match. Unfortunately, you can't really go much further than the ending to all of this. A really unfortunate stop. They Uh, they went 25 minutes before this. 25. Yeah. So, I mean, you had a a great match. It's not like this just happened in the early going of it. They they were probably getting close to that, that closing stretch. And I will say, those 25 minutes, sometimes the, the minutes can, can drag in some of these. This was one where I couldn't believe it was already at 25 minutes. They went, I thought, very quick here. But the closing spot is Kota Bushi climbing to the top for a Phoenix splash. And he just lands the wrong way. Like, I don't know if he just posted wrong on the, on the arm, but it's his right arm just takes all the damage and Red Shoes is checking in on him, and he's clutching onto the wrist, and the match is called off at the 25-minute mark. And Chris Charlton and Kevin Kelly handled this so well of having to be live and react in real time to this injury. Chris is comparing it to Eddie Guerrero in 2000. There was actually a very similar situation involving Kota Bushi and and Prince Devitt back in the finals of the best of the super juniors when Coda did a 450 and messed up his arm coming down and they finished the match, but it was uh, eerily similar here. Uh, this one, they did not go to the finish. Thankfully, um, you know, we always talk about like these big kind of matches like this. You could see it was a bad state when Coda could not move for a long time. He was pretty stationary. I thought it was handled very well when Chris said for the cameras to maybe just lay out here and not try to show the doctor working on him. It was just, this was like a real sports moment where you had to just react in the moment and everyone was concerned for how bad this was, especially given Kota Ibushi and what this guy has put his body through, what he has worked through that for this to bring, this was not him protesting the end either. Like 
I, we, we don't have an update on the severity of the injury, but you know it has to be not good. Especially given the circumstance. You know, this was not just any G1 match. This was the culmination of a month-plus-long tournament in the main event in the Budokan. So if you know somebody as tough as Kota Ibushi is willing to end, have a match end, then you know it had to be incredibly serious. It was probably the most chilling end to a G1 um tournament like there probably has been you know just the visual of like okada laying in the corner completely like face blank as his music is playing in the background declaring him the g1 victor i feel like um this was unfortunately you know a g1 that will be remembered for all the wrong reasons but it's a sobering reminder that this is a high risk athletic activity and i'm very at least happy to see that we are putting the safety of the performers. In this case, there probably wasn't much of a choice. But in this years, one, it was pretty clear, but still, it's not like Red Shoes was hesitant. He was very yeah. quick to call for the bell. And we always talk about like what, what happens when it's the biggest match going and mm-hmm. there is a problem to a performer. And we're going to talk about this next week with WrestleMania 19 and Brock Lesnar with the shooting stars screw up. And they continued and and had to get to the finish. And I would hope in today's day and age, that would not be the case. But mm-hmm. in this one, like there, there, there was no controversy here because there was, there was no continuing for Kota Bushi and there was no hesitation on red shoes. Like to him, it's like, I don't care where we are, what this match is, what the booking is. This guy is not continuing. And they, they took care of this the way it should have been handled. The health of the performers takes complete precedent over any sort of script no matter how carefully it's been mapped out. Now, thankfully, in this situation, it looks like Okada winning was the intended uh, outcome anyway, you know, given like the Tamatanga challenge at the end. Yeah. So I'm I assuming. Mean, at first, though, you're hearing Okada, who's got to still do his speech, and his only focus is this is not the ending I wanted. So he's pushing, like, we've got to do this again. Me and Ibushi have to have another match. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're starting to wonder, like, the. Is he just thinking ahead that if this is something that hopefully is not a serious injury, that they can do this rematch? But you're right. At, immediately after backstage is the angle with Tamatonga. And like it certainly, I came away with this with the assumption that Okada was winning this, but I cannot say 100%. No, we can't. But I, I, I would, I would maybe a bit safely say, and I would also safely say that no matter what, Ibushi was probably going to be involved in that top mix anyway. You know, probably they were intending on this being a very close affair with you know Okada ultimately coming out the victor and probably challenging for a rematch at some point anyway. But with the circumstance of this, uh, let me you know I'll also say I don't know if there's a better person to put in this situation to close out such an awkward, sad, bittersweet situation as a Kazuchika Okada. I don't understand Japanese, but I think the poise and the, the delivery in which he gave this final speech and what he was able to say to wrap up the situation involving, you know, the, the not ignoring the accident, but making mention of it. Um, I thought he gave this crowd like a bit of a feeling of, you know, celebration when there really wasn't much to be taken from, but also hope, you know, for, for a future outcome. So do you, do you want to talk a bit about um, what Okada actually said here? Because I found that to be pretty interesting. Right. So after the Tamatonga involvement, he did this whole speech. And essentially, he is stating that the, the IWGP heavyweight title doesn't exist any longer. And he's trying to position like the G1 champion as equal, if not above the, the status of where Shingo Takagi is right now. Almost very dismissive of Shingo Takagi. And Takagi was on commentary. So they go back and just have it on him. Um, It's very much like Okada is almost like creating his own championship that would put like three titles now into the, into the, into the new Japan universe between Takagi, Will Ospreay, and now Okada, which is interesting when we've got the, the three shows to book for January. Yeah. Yeah. He made it seem like he wanted to retain like he was still considering himself the heavyweight championship so i don't know if he's going to bring back the old belt or what 
but he's essentially kind of ignoring what Kota Ibushi did by separating the, the titles and he's still like it's their way of basically setting up you know something for Wrestle Kingdom and I don't know if this calls into question like Osprey's status whether or not he'll be able to make it for, for that or what but man three belts is a lot don't you think like if it is three so maybe they'll just keep it to these two I'm not sure but there's some shenanigans here going on to fill these main events yeah and not not a whole lot of time like it's we're at the almost the end of October. So, I mean, that those Tokyo Dome shows are going to have to start to have a pretty clear picture by the end of Power Struggle, I would, I would think. Like, that's a pretty big show to shoot a lot of these angles and see what the direction is. Because uh, after, after Power Struggle, like, you've got the best of the Super Juniors and World Tag League, and then we're right into January. I think it's pretty safe to say we're getting at Shingo versus Okada, at least for one of the evenings. Um, Tom Tonga is challenging for the briefcase. It looks like, but I, I would imagine that's that. power struggle. Like, it looks like we're like, my guess would be Shingo and Zach Tanahashi and Kenta Okada and Tamatonga. They teased the never six man, which could be a core Kenyon hall show, or that might be too much for, for power struggle, but at least those top three matches I could see for Osaka. Yeah. We'll probably find out shortly. All right. That was the show. Um, Way, are you able to finish off with feedback? For the we show? actually don't have any. I think the show is just out at a bit of an awkward time. So no feedback today. Thank you, everybody, for no feedback. That is perfect for my timing. Uh, we are going to wrap things up. But thank you to everybody who uh, joined hey, us. Not yet, though, because we have something very special to go to, don't we? That's right. That's right. Before we get on out of here, we will make time for the great Chris Engler because it's time to reveal the winner of the post-wrestling G1 Climax contest. Joining us now is the man behind the G1 Climax contest himself, Chris Engler, joining us for his yearly review of the picks and to reveal the 2021 winner. How are you today, Chris? Doing great. How are you guys? We're doing well. well. We are exhausted, but we are (laughs) holding a bated breath here as we await the the winner of the 2021 post-wrestling contest. So we'll hand it over to you, Chris, to reveal... Uh, winner or winners that you have to, to list and your findings over these 19 events? Sure. So maybe where we'll start is uh, the post-wrestling C block, since that was very hotly contested throughout. So going into the final day of uh, block matches, uh, Kate from Montreal was well ahead, but there was a slim chance that Brad could score uh, if he if he had a perfect card, he would tie her on points, and we'd have to go to tiebreakers. But unfortunately, uh, it didn't end that way. So the top three in the C block were in third place was Randobot with fifty three. That's the best Randobot's ever done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brad the Archivist with fifty six, and uh, Kate from Montreal with sixty. So congratulations to Kate from Montreal for winning the twenty twenty one C block. Very well done. Congrats. And decisive too. We didn't need any tiebreakers. No complicated math. A solid win for Kate from Montreal. And to go to the overall contest winner. Uh, there was just somebody that was Zach Smith had the lead from day two. No one ever tied him or overtook him from that, but it was really interesting. I love diving into the stats and potential scenarios going into the final show. There was one person that had, there was only one person that had a chance to beat Zach, regardless of the results were. And you can't make this up appropriately. That person's name that they submitted was I fight giants. And they needed to have Zach pick zero correctly. Then they would have to pick perfectly themselves. And then they would have won based on uh, tiebreakers, based on the number of perfect days picked. But Zach continued his winning ways. He did slip in the last three shows because he very impressively, up until about day day 13, I think, he never picked less than three correct, which was pretty impressive. But he only got two correct for the last... uh, last three shows but the final standings were in third place uh i fight giants was 64 that person lost out on tiebreakers to rvd 311 who also got 64 but correctly predicted okada to be the b block and overall winner and then in first place well deserved uh zach smith with 66 points um uncontested first place winner wow well congratulations to zach this was the g1 of zach it totally <laughs> very dominant performance from Zach Smith. So congratulations. And we will be in contact. 
or some product. So what I'll do is I've got a bunch of other stats that people may be interested in. So uh, I will post those in, like I'll post the final block day results so people can look at those and then I'll have the uh, the extra stats and figures in that post as well. That'll all be up at postwrestling.com slash G1. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you so much, Chris, for all the work that you put into these uh, completely on a just a voluntary basis. Um, every morning we wake up and these tabulations are already there. You are the man. So thank you so much, Chris. You're welcome. It's fun. Thanks. Uh, thanks as always, Chris. And now this is like a Santa Claus after after Christmas morning. And now you get a full year's break before you have to start planning for the 2022 G1, which well, I get a break until the Rumble. So. Oh, that's right, that's right. That's kind of your, uh, you know, keep it, keeping yourself in in shape season. That's uh, right. Royal Rumble for the big one with the with the G1 next. Well, we will see summer or fall. Maybe it will not be as big of a break as a full year. Right. Well, thank you as always, Chris. Uh, thank you for hopping on with us, and do go check out postwrestling.com for the final tabulations, everything you want to know about this year's post wrestling G1 contest, and congratulations to Zach and Kate from Montreal. Thank you again to Chris Engler for all of his hard work over the past month. And congratulations once again to our winners of the contest this year. That is it for us. Way and I are going to be back on Friday night at 1115 Eastern for Rewind to Smackdown, covering both Smackdown and AEW Rampage. And I want to thank all of you that have followed along with the G1 Climax uh, for the past five weeks, a big thank you to Mark Buckledy as well as Bruce Lord for their fantastic reports on the site. Chris Engler, as we mentioned, and Way for riding shotgun on all of these podcasts as we completed another year of our G1 coverage. And thank you as always, John, and everybody who contributes to Post for just maintaining the fort while we dedicate a bit more of our schedules to this. And thank you to all of the patrons who have joined us for the past month following along with all these shows, whether or not you've been watching the the G1, uh, your support of the Post Wrestling Cafe keeps us going. So we hope you guys stick along, stick around with us along for the next several months and forever, really. Yes. Uh, stay tuned for what Way and I have planned for November. We'll be... We will never stop talking, basically. The world will change on November 1st. All right. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>